Welcome to No Challenges Remaining. On the other side of the finish line of the French Open, we are recording this just a couple hours after the men's final. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined by NCR's intrepid Spain and Sub-Saharan Africa correspondent, Timani Carriol. Timani, hello again. Hello, thanks for having me again. We're back. We are back, and we're done. The 2022 French Open is done. We have two new champions, or two repeat champions, or previous champions, I should say, uh, Iga Sviantek and Rafael Nadal. I We'll get into this maybe later. I don't think this is going to go down as a particularly memorable or classic tournament in a lot of ways. Uh, had some moments, maybe especially, like you could say, Nadal's quarterfinal, but I don't think even that was particularly classic. I don't know. This is not... I'm not leaving this one thinking, like, wow, what a tournament. I mean, wow, what champions. The champions, I think, are incredibly impressive, 100%. But the tournament itself, I don't know. I don't feel like it particularly delivered. Is that unfair? I think that's fair. I mean, I think there were some good matches along the way. And and I'd say in in the men's, more than the women's. But particularly, I don't know, just... We, we leave it on, like, a particularly a, not a great note with the two finals just not really being competitive. And I think that's kind of what, you know, that's the last, you know, the, the last note. Yeah. And, yeah, that's where we are. So it's not really a surprise that either of them were uncompetitive. Let's start with the women's shot, though, and just the women's champion, who I think deserves I wish I had a very down note to start on. Like, why would anyone keep listening after we're so <laughs> meh about the whole thing? But... Iga Sviantek, winning 35 matches in a row, seven more obviously here to get her streak up to 35, passing Serena uh, and tying Venus for longest streak of uh, since 2000. There's a debate over 21st century of two, the year 2000 in there. I have no patience for that. I say century, it includes 2000. Anyway, moving on. Uh, <laughs> Iga's very, very good. And honestly, even unlike Venus and Serena in those streaks, she is winning with these incredible scorelines. It's really more like sort of a Steffi Graf kind of statistical thing that she's doing, I think. And it, she lost one set here. She lost a set in the fourth round to uh, Zhang Xingwen. And that was about it in terms of suspense in her tournament, really. Uh, she won the semifinal very comfortably, 6-2, 6-1 over Kasakina. Won the final, 6-1, 6-3. Against Coco Golf, she won her quarterfinal. I'm saying this out of order for no real reason. Against Pagula, um, pretty routinely. Coco, I mean, Iga Shvantec is great, and she is way ahead of the field. And watching it on Saturday, I was sort of like, of course we picked Shvantec against the field. She's that much better than them, and I think she really showed that here. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think for me, well, well, first of all, just thinking about the streak, what most impressed me was. Well, just thought she started the streak at essentially the the worst possible moment that the after the Australian Open, the biggest you know period without a slam, mm-hmm. and so she came into the tournament with twenty eight you know wins in a row and and added on pressure pressure to that, and I think we I think we discussed it, but certainly I've, I've spoken with people who thought that maybe in Rome it may have been better for her to even lose a match just so that the, the pressure was, you know, less. Yeah. But she she came here with all of that baggage and she managed it incredibly well. She was having to talk about it after every single match, basically. And she, you know, she said afterwards naturally that it, it kind of, that is another kind of stressor that she had to deal with. And yeah, throughout, throughout her, her, her results have been extremely one-sided as, as, Funnily enough, Nadal noted, you know, when he was asked about her early on. and But in, in this tournament, she didn't play her best tennis. Yeah, she, she was, I think she was quite, at least from what she said, she was quite edgy edgy in the um, the first few rounds and wasn't really sure if she had it in her to, you know, after all that had already happened, to to get to the finish line and, and win the tournament. And, and obviously the kind of, the big moment was against Zheng Xingwen. So mm-hmm. had a yeah. Then a lot of tournaments. Yeah, when she lost the first set and was kind of for the first time in a long time, she had a player who was matching her in in quite a few ways. She obviously had a, quite a few set points and and all opportunities to end the first set quite you know more more in a, in a more simpler way. But she you know um, Zheng was kind of there with her and. and 
athletically in terms of you know you know being able to stay in the long rallies and then you know impose her her own game her big forehand blah 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 big serve and all of that stuff and then she lost the set and at that moment kind of I think it the way she responded winning it love and two in in the end the final two sets kind of set the tone for her for the rest of the tournament and I mean obviously there was other stuff going on there you know as, as we know you're talking about Zhang saying Zhang she was saying, having yeah, yeah. menstrual cramp issues. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. But that was kind of, that set the tone and, and she kind of just breathed through the rest of the tournament. And again, so I'm going on, but she, she didn't play her best tennis. But what kind of struck me was how, I don't know, she, well, firstly, she had it whenever she needed it. Anytime she went down a break, you know, she was sharp and ready to, 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 to immediately break back. And just the way she kind of targeted her opponents, the way her opponents are feeling the pressure of facing her. And, you know, it's been a long time, but I'm, I'm old enough to remember when you'd constantly hear people talking about the top players having auras, yeah. even on the women's tour, you know, like Venus, Serena, even like, I don't know, Lindsay Davenport, whoever. Sharapova. Sharapova, exactly, yeah. And you can see that when she plays now. And so, you know, compare, just comparing this to 2020 when she, you know, didn't drop a set and, you know, totaled the field basically back then she was playing that was peak you know she was just winners everywhere crazy level whereas here it was more it was i mean clearly it's been she sustained it for 35 matches but it was more you know it well, wasn't her, the best she can play tennis no and and knowing it's just crazy kind of how much Iga has unlocked so quickly that we can see her playing not her best and acknowledge that or, and even not as well as in 2020. I mean, in 2020, I think, well, I think in 2020, she was playing at her peak. She yeah. was in a zone in 2020, and she just really found that zone. Here, she wasn't zoning. She was just, it's just that her base level is that high right now. Yeah. And even if she's not, you know, hitting every line and really playing, you know, it's not like everything is falling in. She's making some mistakes. She's missing some shots. Um, she's, you know, getting broken occasionally, I guess. Like, even then, still, there's just such margin between her and the field. And then she's established this margin in such a relatively short time. You know, obviously, Ash Barty leaving the game is a part of it. I'm going to ask about Barty in a second because I do think it's interesting. Some of the what-ifs there. Some of it's not interesting, but some of it's interesting. Iga just found this moment to be at her best in a moment where there was space, I think, to do it in the tour. I don't think think the field... I, I don't think the players are bad, but I don't think that almost anybody else is really at, like, a high watermark right now with their tennis. I think that she is surging at a time when everyone else is kind of ebbing a bit for various reasons, you know, like Paula Bedosa gets to number two and then has like a really kind of lackluster clay season all in all. Uh, Krejcikova, who was the number two also seed here, you know, coming back from injury, not really been around for most of, of Iga's streak, uh, so to speak. Sakari not playing her, her best. Shabur's the one exception. Maybe she's been playing well, but she did lose here first round. But she is someone who was actually um, kind of playing some of her career best tennis during during Svantec's streak, and she won Madrid the week that Svantec took off. But yeah, but most, for the most part, like, you know, you see Osaka still not quite at full strength, uh, or regaining some form, some flashes, but even she was way off in Miami. Bianca Andrescu has shown flashes, but hasn't quite gotten back to where we think and hope she can be, in terms of really being a shortlist elite uh, contender. Yeah, I'll uh, just, sorry, yeah, I'll just jump in and say that her loss to Benjic was, to me, what, one of the most surprising... Not 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 her losing to Benjic, who was who's obviously one Charleston and is a great player, blah blah blah. But just the way she lost the way that was she, she was down as well. Like was it two, six two five one? Or, or, she was down in the second set and then got a break back to make the um the loss. The match more, was not close. Yeah, yeah, make it more respectable. But yeah, I I, I had we had high hopes for her, I think. Yeah, the and, of this and I will say on the tournament too. Like Jabir was my pick to make the final of this tournament. And she lost first round to Magdalenette. And that was the disappointing result. Um, but that was actually, honestly, the only result in, I think, uh, Bianca losing to Benchich a little bit less as well. For what I'm saying for the tours, like, uh, uh, Shontek was the only one of the top 10 seeds to make the fourth round, even. And it wasn't actually shocking, like, if you look at the um, individual cases of each of those nine other players and how they went out. And actually, both you and me, I know John Wertheim in his predictions, too, both picked Kasakana and Goff to make semis. Like, these were not shocks that developed here. There was actually, if you're paying attention to the tour, relatively understandable, again, except maybe with the exception of Shipper, but it was actually a pretty, you know, predictable tournament on the women's side in a lot of ways, more than the men's. I said this when the semis were set. I actually picked three of the four 
women semifinalists correctly and zero of the men because I would have picked Djokovic, I would have picked Alcaraz, and they didn't make semis. And I would have picked Tsitsipas, and he didn't make it. And I would have picked, I don't even know who, I picked Sinner, I think, for the fourth quarter. But yeah, anyway, I think that Iga is in a spot now where she's just way ahead of the pack, and it's just a question of how much she can maintain that altitude with no one really on her heels. Does she get complacent? Can she keep up that hunger and that focus and that intensity we match in, match out to keep being flawless streak, especially as it goes to probably her least comfortable surface on grass coming up? We'll see. Um, I'll, I'll skip ahead to this part. Well, yeah. I, well, just one more thing I'll just say that I think, you know, ideally, Iga's success and what she's doing should be, you know... I she mean, motivate we, we, the field. Exactly. We, we've said this about Barty, but... It, that should happen, and I think there are there are some good players who can hang with her. You know, Andrescu and Osaka being the main ones, and I don't know. It would I want to see this motivate them to get to that level and to you know to to be at that level, and, and also in general for other players to real to see that it is possible to be consistent and to do this week to to win week after week and to do it at. At not just the slams, but at, you know, at every level of tournament. And so, yeah, otherwise, they're going to be left behind. Yeah. And so, <laughs> this should be kind of a wake-up call. You know, it, it, it was Barty at the beginning of the year, and I, I feel like um, with Barty's unique style, um, maybe some players could kind of, I don't know, she, she it, her doing so well was a bit less relatable than... Mm-hmm. than Shrontek, Shrontek, I should say, is, you know, she's kind of in her own way a, a, a freak of, you know, in, in terms of her offensive ability, her defense, her like athleticism of defensive ability. But this should be some something that other players should be aspiring to, or she's gonna just keep on winning, and they don't have to deal with that. Yeah, I we've seen it in tennis history for sure. When someone gets way out, whether it's Serena, whether it's you know maybe Justin Ennen, even circa two thousand seven, who was a really really dominant player as well, and had one of these long streaks that Iga has passed here, that, you know, it sets a mark for the people to, to emulate. And yes, the thing with Barty is she was just starting to get to that that phase, and yeah. I think I think her Australian Open really was her first kind of untouchable slam win yeah, in yeah. some ways. That was her first taste of real dominance, and then she left pretty much right after that. Um, so there wasn't really a chance for the tour to respond to her some way. What do you think, if Barty was still playing, would Iga... I've still won all the stuff she won. Or how do you think it would affect things? I think, personally, that the level that Shvantec has shown this year, it's better than Barty ever was. And the steadiness of it is very different than anything we had seen from Barty, um, who I felt was always more inclined to wobble in matches than I see from Shvantec. Yeah, I don't know how much of that recency bias, but I am more impressed by Iga as a number one and a dominator than I was with the taste I got from Barty in that level. I mean, I think it's, it's hard with Barty as well, just because, as you said, like, at, like at the beginning of this year was when it really seemed like she was rounding into her peak peak form. Her fi- mm-hmm. like, you know, I mean, it is a, a final form. Whereas, you know, last year, obviously, she, you know, she was very consistent already, but there was obviously the, the COVID stuff with her, you know, being, you know, away from home for so long and, whatever effect that had on her and mm-hmm. you know 2019 was just when she was breaking out I, I agree with you that I think Shriandek has shown a higher level and particularly just the what she's capable of doing in her game um I don't know just her, her top level which she's shown she's shown you know throughout I don't know I, I just think it would have been I think it's such and people maybe because of how understated Barty is that but people haven't talked about enough just how much of a huge blow it is that you know it's so bizarre that you have Barty leave and that you have this one outstanding consistent player retire and you have this other player immediately after she Triantic still hasn't lost a match since Barty retired yeah and you know we will I mean unless Barty comes back we'll, we'll never get to see them play together you know that could have been a, you know, we've been talking for so long about, well, people have been wanting rivalries and that was clearly something that could have, you know, they could have pushed each other and pushed each other's games to a higher level. You know, even though, you know, I, I, I tend to agree that Shiontek was playing at a higher level, um, Barty's still, like, such a complicated player to face. And, yeah. you know, we don't, don't even know how that matchup would have developed. And 
on, on that note, um, we, we spoke to, a few of us spoke to Igor and we had like a, a small round table with just like a, a couple of other journalists. Um, after her final win. After her final win. And <laughs> I think it was Rima Baleo who asked her um, if, you know, that question, like, do you ever, you know, do you think, what, what do you ever think about how you'd match up with Ash? And that was like the most animated she'd been in the whole thing. She was like, yes, I do. I was actually thinking about it last night. This was before the final. She was just, her mind was wondering to how, how it would be to face Barty. And yeah, it's, it's something we'll, we'll, we won't ever know. It's frustrating for women's tennis fans, man, because like rivalries are so important for this sport. You can't deny that. And just women's tennis has not been offering them yeah. really since, you know, Sharapova Serena. Not that even people think it's around, but it was the most like in terms of two top players who just, played each other routinely. Just, yeah, just meeting each other in yeah. the late rounds consistently. Yeah. Like that was it, even if it wasn't, or Serena as Renka, and Azarenka, or or Azarenka Sharapova, and even and I'm sure there's maybe a couple like, others. You can throw in like Wozniacki and yeah, you know, I don't know, even yeah, yeah. No, there there were there were people in the mix, and it's just like it hasn't been that kind of consistency in that level. There's some, you know, there are some uh, top tenors who had good 2021s who played each other a few times, but it's not oh. the level of being the people who are really contesting each other week in, week out. And who knows? Maybe Zhang Qingwen can emerge quickly as that first fiancé. She was the one who scared her. She's young, but young players are doing big things now. Or maybe with some help, we can get to her now. It could be Coco Golf. Who knows? Coco Golf is still a lot of room to improve, but it's already reaching pretty good heights, reaching the final here as an 18-year-old. It's I think remarkable how this story did not get that overhyped as far as I could tell in the US. And I think it's a big testament how incredibly overhyped it got in 2019 when she was 15 and maybe it got all the hype out of their system a bit with Coco Golf stories back then. Um, but Coco Golf making a Grand Slam final 18 is a remarkable achievement and a young 18 too. She just turned 18 in March and she did it pretty solidly throughout the tournament. She had a tough quarterfinal against Sloane Stevens uh, and then beat Martina Trevisan in a potentially tricky uh, semifinal match. Did not really match up very well against Svantec in the final. Uh, did not have much to challenge her. She also made the doubles final with Jesse Pagula. Made, uh, lost that one to the reunited team of Garcia Mladenovic. Coco Goff, what do you make of her getting a sort of breakthrough at a slam here? Uh, she had not she had not made a semifinal before, now she's in the final. Yeah. And, and how quickly do you think that she can sort of become the next... A, a challenger, or I mean, and and it's the or is the gap between her and, or she's just gonna be part of the sort of the peloton while Schwantek races ahead. Yeah. Um. So so as as you said at the beginning, she was we we both identified her immediately as someone who could well as the one of the heavy favorites to reach the final. She, she had a good did. draw, and it, yeah, exactly. And she had a good draw, and it was impressive how she dealt with it, and you know didn't drop a set until the final. Most of her the last few matches. She'd have like a tight or tight-ish first set and then just run away with it. Mm-hmm. So she was impressive in that. I think that the most impressive part as well for me was this off the court stuff and how you could just see how she's how she's matured in in three years. Like she was already like considered mature for you know for her age. Well, clearly she was for fifteen year old when she first broke through. But just seeing like the change in perspective and how you know how she she has come to understand and and believe that tennis isn't everything in, in her life and that, you know, to, to, I don't know, just to keep a bit of perspective during her, you know, with her wins and her losses and her ambitions and, and everything. And I think that, you know, we know how it can go with prodigies and how, how you know, it can be, you know, tennis can become the everything and then you lose perspective of, of everything else, with yeah. everything else. So it's just, it's yeah, it's first of all just like really impressive just to see how she's continued to just mature and grow and you know all of her press conferences were excellent even yeah. even the final like after the final she was crying like throughout the press conference and she was at one point she was like i hate myself for crying but even while she was like tears were rolling down her eyes she was still like really engaging and really i don't know it was just it was just not that was just pleasant to see um and and in, in terms of your question um i mean I, I think she's still you know she as as you said she had a good draw and she took advantage of it. I think there's there's still like top well whoever they are, the best players should still be able to, particularly with her forehand. I think she she hit her forehand, you know, as and as she said like in, during her matches it held up very well. But but the best players in the world should still be able to, 
you know, take advantage of it and exploit it. And that's what, you know, Shriantek just kind of, <laughs> just like destroyed it really, that tore it apart with, with her own forehand, with her, her returning, her, her serve, just kind of picked it apart. So I think like she's still, she's still like a, a distance away from certainly that level. That was very evident to me mm-hmm. in the final. But she's, you know, she's continuing to make strides and, um, yeah, well, at 18 years old, like, so much can still change and be improved and be adapted. So I think she's continuing to, you know, I think it's really, just really impressive that she's continued to make that progress. It hasn't been, you know, she didn't arrive at 15 and then immediately sprint to the top, but she's making gradual progress and and learning more about herself and and the tour each time. And, yeah, I think it was, even though she lost the two finals and, that's not fun. It was obviously an incredibly positive tournament for her. I just give a lot of pre- credit to her, just for her maturity, her thoughtfulness, um, and to her parents also, just in terms yeah. of like stopping all these sort of negative things we see associated with prodigies who get really hyped. And she was really hyped yeah, in 2019. Yeah. And almost like maybe in some ways the pandemic came at a useful time to sort of pause things for her, uh, just from her own personal level um, in terms of, not running away with it. The hype has not been quite the same since she came back from the pandemic. Obviously, I'm playing in front of no fans and stuff gives a bit of a breathing room in some way for that. Um, and she's still developing. Like you said, Like there's still a lot of things she can improve and that her not fully developed, not fully maximized game can make a Grand Slam final. Granted, again, not through like the most robust competition necessarily, although Sloan was playing well. That was not, Sloan was not going to be an easy out in this tournament. That was, uh, I think, I think a lot of people were hoping, honestly, everyone won that match made the final because that was a, a very credible, solid uh, match. Yeah, but Bookoff is, is really impressive in so many ways. She's incredibly uh, conscientious and engaged in the world. Uh, obviously, you know, writing and gun yeah, violence yeah. on the camera after her semifinal win, uh, the biggest win of her career to do that and just sort of instinctually and then being able to articulate things and going on NBC yeah. and talking about the importance of registering to vote and voting in local elections and things like that. Yeah. Like, that's that's really impressive and, yeah. and cool and different. And she's had that from a young age, even before she broke out at Wimbledon. She was doing, you know, politically oriented black history kind of stuff. I, I'm just super impressed by her. And, and also overall. just like the, the, the self-awareness. You mentioned, you talked about the hype and, and I think it was she she who like said that she'd been compared to Serena. Yeah. And at some point she'd like believe, you know, come started to believe it and she needed to, you know, eventually she she moved on and kind of set set on her own path and 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 yeah just also kind of she, she also said that she kind of put you know while, while she was trying to win and at all costs she, she kind of put herself in a bubble and it you know, she continually ref, referenced her quarterfinal um here last year when she lost to Barbara Krejcikova eventual champion she had like an like maybe like three set five set points maybe in, in the first set and then kind of just went you know it, it kind of went went away and just like i don't know she, she she's just grown and she's aware of the how she's growing and it's just it's yeah it's good it's nice to see someone who, who's that self-aware and at, at such a young age because yeah not everyone is let's talk about someone who's about just about twice her age rafael nadal who just turned 36 this week switching the men's side rafael nadal turns 36 wins his 22nd grand slam title 14th at the french open very comfortable win for him today. 6-3, love over Casper Rude. I don't know if I really had any hopes for that match, but it was probably more lopsided than I thought it would be. I thought Casper would get more than six games out of this final. Nadal got through the big blockbuster match uh, in the quarterfinals, uh, which I honestly did not expect him to. I was picking Djokovic to win that match, especially when it became a night match. You know, maybe I'm just boo-boo the fool, as they say, <laughs> but I am really... Yeah, Im- not impressed and surprised. But th- and then he got th- this bizarre semifinal match against Zverev, where it took them more than three hours to reach the beginning of a second set tiebreak, like three hours and nine minutes to reach the beginning of a second set tiebreak. And then right at that point, Zverev uh, rolled his ankle badly and the match stopped. What most strikes you about Rafael Nadal's 14th uh, title run here? Um, I'll say before, and then he'd he gone five in the fourth round against uh, Felix Ogiel, I seem. Yeah. I have mentioned that. Uh, the first week was very unimpeded for him very easy first week yeah what do you make about his uh his overall run i here? mean so, so obviously he, he came in with a lot going on in terms of his you know his, his clay season had been kind of shortened and, and messed up really by the fracture stress stress factor in his rib 
and then of course at, at, in Rome um, he he had kind of like a relapse I guess of of the chronic foot injury the Muller Weiss syndrome mm-hmm. and and kind of against Shapovalov and wasn't really able to run so he came in here with that and you know as, I guess as we'll, we'll discuss more he he said that he had to well he had to put his foot under anesthetic and and freeze it so and you know freeze the kind of nerves so, so that those all that going he said he wouldn't want to give me details but he did say injections before every match yeah basically a couple, here. A couple of so injections. it seems like one big injection as far as i'm reading between the lines like one big injection pre-tournament maybe and then like you know maintenance injections for yeah, every yeah. single match so it's a lot a lot of stuff pumped into this yeah way. yeah and so what most impressed me in this tournament was that for all of those reasons he, he wasn't in good i don't think he was in good form you know that was evident clear in the like the felix match when he he started badly then he you know he he you know got things together and got things rolling and just when you thought you know he's running away that this is Rafa Nadal in in Roland Garros then he played a horrible like started the fourth set horribly and and lost his serve a couple of times and it was in a, in his third five set match of of his life felix kind of did everything right but you know that third five set match of his life at Roland Garros says mm-hmm. and Felix did everything right, but <laughs> clearly that's not something that is normally happens at Roland Garros. But th- what impressed me was how throughout this tournament he played his best tennis when he desperately needed it, when he really needed it. It was right there. It was there like in that fifth set when it was 4-3 and he kind of just surged and was suddenly just like breezing to the net and crushing for and down the lines and he took it like that wasn't a choke by Felix or anything. He kind of, it, he took it out of his hands and you know the the interesting thing following that was against Novak. So, so he obviously started that match incredibly well. He was up six two three love double break um, in the second set. Yeah. And 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 then so and so he started incredibly well, then finished incredibly well, saving set points on Djokovic's serve, and then winning the the final set, the fourth set tiebreak. And afterwards, like in the Spanish part, he said basically it, a match like that kind of simplifies things because. It's either you bring your plan A or you go home. You know he, knew, you know, it, he's obviously a player who has so much in his game, and you know he has he comes on the court knowing that if A doesn't work, I can do this. If not, I can do this. Whereas against Novak, he had to be his best, so he was his best. Which is to me, that's you know not the whole match because he lost the double break in the second set, but when he needed to, it was there. And then again, even against Zverev, like that was, you know, he was that. So so that the conditions were. It was under the roof, and the conditions were so slow and humid, and you know we know that those are the the clay court conditions in particular that Rafa kind of detests, really. Mm-hmm. And it's obviously not something that normally happens at Roland Garros because there hasn't been a roof, you know, for most of his his time there. But when he needed it, which was down down two six in the first set tiebreak, it was there. Like he just you know Zverev, you know Zverev missed one. Serve and volley on 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 his one of his set on his first set point on his serve, but then Nadal just surged, played a cra- crazy angled um, cross court forehand winner, and then another point he said, you know, he you know it suddenly he barely hit a ground stroke winner through that entire first set, and then suddenly you know they were just they were just there, so you know even though that that's it ended abruptly with with Zverev's injury, you know after that I was just you know. It, as, assuming that at some point you know, he was going to again just raise his level and separate himself even though that second set was horrible that was a horrible set of tennis with yeah <laughs> with, with Nadal just struggling with the conditions badly and also serving badly and then Zverev you know he he recovered he he was led by 5-3 and then he hit three double he double fought the previous game in on break point and then he hit three double fours in the game and he was serving for it so it, yeah it, it was a lot it was a lot, and it was it, it was on pace to be an over seven hour match at the t- the time pace it was going. And I just say that that additionally made it even more excruciating. Just how long how long it was, yeah. you know. It, it, but yeah, yeah. When that match ended, um, yeah, it was it was yeah, it was on pace to be something really really kind of ridiculous time wise. I want to talk briefly about Djokovic. This was not a great performance for him in this quarterfinal, no. and especially he seemed to really. Let his foot off the gas up 5-2, it was, in the fourth set. Uh, it seemed like he'd kind of, 
honestly kind of tanked the third a little bit. Maybe I was seeing it as like an energy reserve kind of thing. And then he got up way up in the fourth. And I think he thought that Nadal was also going to maybe go away. Maybe he was thinking this on some level and just go to a fifth set. But then Nadal just kind of sprung up and, and beat him. It was just a sort of weirdly unfocused match from Djokovic in a way that I don't associate with him. And again, really poor start. Um, I read an interview that Sasha Osmo did for tennis majors or was on tennis majors with Gordon Ivanisevic about it. I uh, was pretty critical of the level and just saying there's a lot to look back. I haven't analyzed it yet, but still a lot of things that sort of were concerning in that match for him um, from from his player, Djokovic. Um, where does this set up Djokovic? And we can get, we're going to wrap up a little bit with Swimbledon love, but where does this set up Djokovic for the rest of the year, right? Because he's now two Grand Slams down from, from Nadal in this race to finish on top, and we know that's still motivating for him. He's won Wimbledon many times recently, and he's good on hard courts, although we actually don't know if he can get to the U.S. right now with the vaccine rules. So let's just focus on Wimbledon. How does Djokovic leave uh, Roland Garros? What should he be thinking? I agree that it was just disappointing, and also just the way he started. So that, that's the third straight match between them at Roland Garros that Nadal has just kind of breezed out of the blocks, and Djokovic has just kind of not been there. And, you know, it seemed like he was almost probably not well he shouldn't be anyway but it seemed he was almost kind of startled and taken aback by the level from Nadal at the beginning and which is he just couldn't yeah and he couldn't match it when you know like as I said like Nadal knew he had to be ready and so he was and Djokovic just wasn't and do you, do you think that Djokovic buys into the or bought into in some way subconsciously or not like the whole sort of like oh Nadal's hurt and in pain and he can't be his best I mean, I think... Narrative, which I think Nadal does a lot of work to set. He, yeah. So I think he was in... He quite kind of open, like, kind of admitted that in 2020. You know, when they played and it was similarly, you know, in the winter conditions and mm-hmm. everyone was saying that. I think after that match, he kind of pretty much copped to it. Like, yeah, I kind of thought I was... I had the advantage here. I don't, you know... I mean, if he was still thinking that two years on after that happened, I mean, that would be crazy as well to me. I, I don't think... But I, I don't know. I, I do think that... Although he had kind of ideal preparation in terms of winning Rome and looking more like himself, clearly I don't think all of the baggage from Australia has, you know, is has been brushed has, aside. Has cleared customs. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, and, and so it's it's it definitely leaves him in an interesting place. Just seeing how he he didn't get up get up for that match and wasn't able to even just extend it to a fifth set after putting himself in a great position to do so. Um, the good thing is that he's, you know, he's the resident grass court specialist these days, so... He should be a huge favourite at Wimbledon. Yeah, yeah, So, I mean, who is going to, you know, particularly given Nadal's current... Which we we didn't... Which I guess we should talk about after this. Yeah. Nadal's current situation. Yeah, we can talk about it now. Go for it. Yeah. Um, well, just to... On, so, so, as things stand for Nadal, he said that he spent this tournament... Um, Put put in well putting his foot to sleep, which is kind of how he phrased yeah. it. With with anesthetic. he used asleep as a verb. Yeah, <laughs> sleeping my foot essentially. Yeah, um, which yeah, which is and and he you know he he explained like in his press conference he'd obviously like during the tournament he constantly said in both English and Spanish I'll explain all of this afterwards mm-hmm. and it was I was pretty like struck by it and I think you were just how in how much detail he went into I wasn't expecting that. Um, just how much he talked about it. It's probably one of the longest answers he's really given in English. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and, and so now he says he's, it, seem, it seems like, according to him at least, he's he's at a crossroads in that he's now taking, um, he, he's going for this treatment. So Nadal is at somewhat of a crossroads in, in that he, he's now, after this tournament, which he says he, he was, he did this, he, use the anesthetic for one tournament, but it's not something that he will or is willing to, you know, do again. You know, this was an extreme measure. It's Roland Garros, blah, 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 you know, enough said. Um, and, and now he's will undergo a radio frequency ablation, which which he described as where you, you kind of burn. So, so he, he, he during this tournament, he, he used, he injected, the specific nerves with anesthetic in order to numb them and you know numb the pain and now they will try to to essentially burn the nerves so to you know have the same effect but uh, uh, in more permanently and 
So that's what he's he's his people try now. He says he's he's still not ruling out Wimbledon, and if his he said if his body's in in the right place, so he wants to play Wimbledon. You know, that's in three weeks. So, but he's also not ruling out you know stopping playing tennis pretty exactly, soon. Yeah. That's the thing that made that was sort of honestly the suspense of today with the match not being competitive. With what Nadal would say about his future, there was a lot of buzz or sort of rumors going around today, honestly, about like will Nadal announce some sort of retirement today? Is, is is Roger Federer here to do some sort of secret reveal for Nadal's retirement? There are all sorts of wild stuff he, happening. He here. was he was in Paris and he was pictured with former Arsenal manager Arsene Wenger. I'm an Arsenal mm-hmm. fan, mm-hmm. so of importance to me. So yeah, people thought he was just going to like 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 the Songa thing where like a million people came running out yeah. of the court. They thought he was going to, you know, show up. Yeah, it didn't happen that way. It didn't happen. And so we didn't get anything conclusive on Nadal's future. But I, a question I asked him in press was just like, what keeps you motivated? Like he talked all of a sudden about the pain and the suffering and da-da-da-da-da, and how he cares about having a you know full life after tennis and doing these things. But what keeps him going is because he's won so much. And he said it's still just his, his answer was his passion for the sport and his love of competing and his love of being out there. Not so much being goals oriented about wanting to win more, or to care about his position vis-a-vis Federer and and Djokovic in the all-time race. It's yeah. it's interesting, and it's just like tough to know like how much is too much for him, and how much you know as we see like, Federer pushing to make it back to tour for this like big knee, last knee injury he has, and who knows what he's doing in order to get in shape for that. And you see, not that they're really going through severe injuries that we think of, but like. Venus and Serena pushing to come back, pretend maybe we don't know what their future is, honestly, but like thinking about potentially coming back to tour at 40 and the sacrifices that would make uh, for them. It's, yeah. it's interesting to see like what's worth it and what's not worth it to Nadal, um, who obviously doesn't famously doesn't give up. And as Roland Garros once said, victory belongs to the most tenacious. Um, but uh, yeah. yeah. So, so um, but just to like conclude what I was saying, um, he, so now he's at kind of, he says he's at, kind of a crossroads where he'll try this this treatment and if it doesn't work then he'll have to decide whether to or he have to talk with himself I think that was how he phrased it and decide whether to go for a major surgery um that could that may or may not bring him back you know allow him to play compet- at a high competitive level again it's, it's funny like while I was watching him talk about that it, it gave me flashbacks to, to Maria Australia just without the tears in, in, and in place of the tears was that big fat trophy on the table. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, but it's it's quite it's quite grip. It's quite grip. You know, he's he, he says he's you know having to. He's seriously considering his, his future and it, that, that talk is grim, but also at the same time he just won a grand slam today. Yeah. So it's an interesting mix of like yeah, being yeah. bleak, but, but yeah. also still being dominant. Yeah. So it's it's honestly kind of tough to reconcile those sometimes, and just in your head they don't always compute. But it's an interesting moment for sure. I want to mention a couple other people who we haven't mentioned in this tournament so far. Carlos Alcaraz, um, who was a big, big hype. Um, people were actually genuinely shocked when he lost the number three player in the world in a Grand Slam mm. quarterfinal. He never made a he never went made a semifinal before, but he was just so written in there. And totally. that was a match yeah. that um, I think people were sleeping on in a lot of ways. I think people were sleeping on Zverev's chances in this tournament overall, and, honestly. Yeah. But and sort of had never beaten a top 10 player at a Grand Slam, which people, I think, harped on a lot, and he still has that one win uh, now over Alcaraz. Um, but, yeah, I mean, was this were we crazy to think Alcaraz was the favorite to make it out of this quarter? He came close. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fine that he was the favorite. I think that's not, you know, he beat, he also beats Rev, even even though obviously it's Rev was, was complaining about scheduling. Like, yeah. He beats Rev, you know, in their last one. In Madrid, one. yeah. I do think, like, the... The way people were just like writing him in, and the way you know, even in like some of the in the press conferences, people would be like, "So, so what's it going to be like facing Rafa and Novak?" And I was like, "Well, first of all, he, you know, he was like, well, I only have to face one of them.'" <laughs> but yeah, it was it was a bit much, um, and I mean the whole thing like with, with the, him playing the night matches, and you know, we we barely even had a chance to probably speak with him because you know he he didn't do pre tournament press, and then he would just be finishing so late, you know, past his bedtime. And doing like a few, a few questions in mixed zone. So um, there was that, um, I, and yeah, I think in the end, Zverev absolutely loved it being in that position where you know in in the past he was the guy who was hyped as the next big thing, and you know with, with everyone kind of putting their attention elsewhere, he wanted he had something to prove. He had 
well, he always has a chip on his shoulder, but it was, you know, a, the size of a planet. So he, and yeah, he went in there. To be honest, I was like, prob- that comfortably, in my opinion, the best Grand Slam match he's played in his life. And he played really well against Alcaraz, I thought. And yeah. Yeah. And, and Alcaraz was kind of off, you know, he's, he's spectacular, but he, a lot of what he does is, is crazy and high risk. And, you know, when it's off, it's off. And he kind of pulled himself back together in the end of the match. But then Zverev kind of held on. And there were a couple of bad misses from Alcaraz in that four-set yeah. tie-break, too. But I will say that, you know, he, he he's 19 years old and he just made the... Well, no, he's 18 years old. 19 now. 19, so yeah. yeah. Long two weeks. He's 19 years old and he just made the quarterfinals of the, of the French Open. It's, you know, that's a good thing. Not too shabby. He had a... He had a Good tournament, and yeah. and he'll be able to build on that and learn, and you know, he he backs himself, and I think you know it's just another step in in Carlos Alcaraz as well. So we get to night sessions. Um, I'm going to talk about them in a second. I want to talk about one specific one first, just briefly. Uh, Holger Rune uh, playing against Casper Ruud in a Nordic night session battle of young Vikings, which was I'll just say which had a supposedly had a feel good factor to it initially you know the, the two, two scandinavians yeah you know that's how it was built these two boys from these countries with not the most spicy food delivered the spiciest match of the tournament at least afterwards uh runa is someone who uh has a big personality i will say um and a lot of confidence and presence out there uh, he beat Tsitsipas in this tournament, which was really the first, which was a big surprise, actually, that he beat Tsitsipas, and Tsitsipas was a big favorite to make the final on the bottom half, and that really did kind of open things up. Um, but yeah, what what do you make of, of that match, and sort of, and there was this whole, uh, anyway, to say it, basically, so Holger's kind of, you know, uh, demonstrative and being himself a lot during the match, uh, have a handshake afterwards, and uh, Rude shakes his head disapprovingly afterwards, <laughs> and then Runa says that after the match that Casper screamed, yaw, in his face, and, and Rude denies this, and it's a whole back-and-forth thing, and it's just, yeah, it's... Uh, and the parents got involved. The parents, well. both parents are weighing in. Talk about needing rivalry. It's like, I think it's kind of fun to have a little Norway-Denmark beef uh, yeah. Swedish meatball between them. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was... Shot blar. It was not entirely expected, and I, I... Yeah, it was... Just, like, lows... I think Courtney actually, like mentioned this just low stakes drama there's yeah. been a lot of trauma in tennis there's been deportations and all sorts so of course it's something that was just completely wars mean. wars you yeah know? And, and chinese government but this was low stakes <laughs> in, a, in a good way <laughs> exactly and, and so it, it was enjoyable to just kind of just chuckle at something silly and then just move on um i'd say like in, in terms of Un, he um i was i was impressed i was i enjoyed like his, his run not, you know, yeah. again, another nineteen-year-old in, in the quarters, and and he, you know, the drop shots, the creativity, the you know, he was playing like, you know, he's not nearly as spectacular as Alcaraz, but he's kind of enjoyable player in his own way. Yeah. But and that's a big capit, but with the capital letters here, he, you know, the drama, man. This guy just brings everywhere he goes. I've never seen a player just. In such short amount of time, so he played his, um, like his fiftieth tour match during the tournament, uh-huh. and it, it feels like every other tournament there's something going on. Whether it's you know him shouting homophobic slurs or him that did happen a couple that, years ago that did happen last, last year, year last yeah, year yeah. yeah or or when I think a challenger event when he like retired from a a match because of some issue he he had well he I don't know there, there was some there's just drama. Everywhere and I don't know. It, 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 particularly like in this situation, I, I wasn't in the locker room. I, I don't know. I I don't know. <laughs> but when when you put Rune and and Rude t- together, and who are you gonna? Who is who? Are, who are who is the pe- people gonna believe? Are they yeah. gonna? Yeah, it's quite you know. It's quite clear cut there, and I don't know. It, the the drama is gonna clearly be a source of entertainment, but also it's too. It's a lot, and it's, you know... Okay, I obviously don't support the homophobic remarks he made last year. He directed at himself. He was shouting homophobic slurs at himself. Yeah. Which is unusual. Um, and, and he apologized for it somewhat not ideally. No, and his, did, and, and his, mean, his mom weighed in, too. And so, barely an apology. Yeah. Anyway, that part aside, like, 
and I feel free to not put that aside if you want. Um, but he has addressed that, and that was when he, he's still, you know, young, and it's still bizarre behavior, especially because his generation just is not homophobic relative to older ones, which is a weird thing to have happen. Um, he's, he's, I, he's old. It should be noted just that he's older than Coco Golf. Oh, that's true. No, that is true. Um, but yes, nowhere near the maturity of Coco Golf. I think it's fair to say. But he is like amusingly extra, I will say. Uh, and like, I one of my favorite things about his presence is is on his Twitter. He has this recent habit he's developed of on his tweets of putting siren emojis before his tweets <laughs> to announce like he had won that he did while he made the quarterfinals or semifinals of Munich. It was like siren emoji statement. <laughs> I will not be playing Madrid qualifying because I am still in Munich. And just the grandiosity of the siren emoji for your yeah. own pulling out of qualies. I I thought yeah, that was not, spectacular. You know what I call that? What? The yesterification of professional tennis. He is kind of Mel Yashemska. I think it's probably the best... Uh, best uh, that's actually, it actually holds up that comparison in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm for a bit of that. Not too much of that, but a bit of that. Is uh is is welcome? Yeah, I, I think I am looking forward to him as a person. I've never met him. I've never, I, well, I did talk to him in one press conference, but I don't know him super well. He's still very new on tour, um, but I'm intrigued to see how how that all of that uh, you know is met by the tour because he's gonna rub some people the wrong way. And it should be noted that he he like he also rubbed. He was supposed to play doubles, and I, I forgot who who with um, here. Yeah, here, but he like told told his his partner by text that they won't be playing together or, or some or something you know just really they screw up the partner pretty much yeah uh, yeah so that's they, not great that, yeah. anyway uh the night sessions the last of which was rune rude uh were a talking point here we both were at several night sessions to Ami. this was something that honestly i did not enjoy as an addition to the tournament overall making Honestly, selfishly, but we found that from our own personal experience, making our days much longer. It still starts just as early at 11 a.m. and now routinely ending around 1 a.m. Um, and then you add on press, too, after that. is a lot. And the matches, I, I don't like that there are one-match sessions, one-match one tickets. I think a very risky proposition, especially early in the tournament. You could could do more. There's plenty of matches still left on, in, the, in the tournament. You know, you could easily have had something... Uh, where a player rolls an ankle badly or does something in the first opening games of a match and the match is just over and it would have really screwed up a whole bunch of ticket players who paid a lot for one match. The matches also were not particularly compelling that we got in the night sessions. The only one that was like a full quote-unquote possible epic was, uh, well, I mean, Djokovic and all was fine. That was like, that, the match delivered on its promise, I think it's fair to say, probably. I mean, it wasn't their best match by any stretch, but it was fine. Buzetti being up two sets 11 and then losing to Sitsipas in one of the first night session matches in the first round. Uh, that one was, again, predictable because we'd seen Muzetti class before. And it was one of those where, like, neither would, there wasn't a point where they were both playing well at the same time. It was Muzetti starts well and then stops playing well and Sitsipas takes over. So it was long, but I don't think particularly dramatic, honestly. That, that was, people watching it. That, that was just, just to insert, that was also kind of the issue with Nadal, Nadal Djokovic. And yeah. Neither of them played well at the same time. Yeah. There was only, and we'll get to this part next, there was only one women's match put in the night sessions. Uh, it was French number one, Alizé Cornet, against uh, 2017 champion Ostapenko. That was one of the most competitive matches that was in the night sessions, weirdly. I mean, because Cornet won the first set 6-love, and then lost the second set 1-6 to Ostapenko, and then they had a fairly tight third set that, that Cornet won. Um but it was only best of three, and some people were not happy. They spent all this money for just one best of three women's match. Amelie Moresmo, you know, created trouble for herself when she was asked about this. And I got to say, Amelie, in this press conference, didn't seem prepared for a lot of the questions that were going to be the most obvious questions in this. And I don't know if that's down to her, if it's down to FFT comms team not prepping her for what to expect in her first time being a, you know, a tournament director facing the media. Um, but basic questions about what to do at night sessions. What about the lack of transportation, publicly, public transportation available? Uh, that answer was crazy. That answer was terrible. And she's like, oh, we couldn't anticipate it. It's like, of course you yeah. could. Like, this is a basic thing for a sporting event. And it, and it, it, sorry, the answer just ended with like, right now there's, there's nothing. We have nothing. <laughs> and I don't, think that, I don't think that's necessarily true. I don't think the tournament has nothing. But like, she just wasn't quite ready for a lot of questions. It was just kind of hard to watch. Anyway, the one that got the most attention was Catherine Whitaker in the very first, I believe, English question when it switched to English, asking, pushing her a bit on the gender split of the 
night sessions, and Amelie responded by saying that at this time, women's tennis doesn't have as much. And then she sort of searched for the word in English, saying, which is a wrong word to search for, saying what women's tennis lacks, like appeal, attractiveness, uh, interest, uh, things like that. And look, as we said, it might not be a the highest watermark for women's tennis right now in terms of rivalries, in terms of these things. But for a former for a tournament director and a former WTA number one to say these things, I think is incredibly damaging to women's tennis, potentially, and irresponsible. And I know was seen as a betrayal by a lot of, you know, women's tennis alumni and people who just care about women's tennis in general, that like that she would do this is gonna use ammunition by people who want to bring up women's tennis. That even Amelie Moresmo says this. And again, it was one of those answers that was is an anticipatable question that she just was a little too off the cuff and too loose answering. And yeah, it was uh, it was all just sort of regrettable from her. Yeah. And I just said, in, in my opinion, the big issue here is the, the money grab of yes. the night sessions, which are streamed here in, in France, are streamed exclusively by Amazon Prime, mm-hmm. which have a big lucrative deal. And I think from 2021 to, is it 2021 to 2023? So three years. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and so then, but but that's that how it is the the initial contract, um, which in itself caused a lot of drama with um, so so the French Open is is normally carried by a kind of state, uh, you know, state funded broadcaster France Televisions, mm-hmm. and, and the CEO was also or a prominent figure was very publicly kind of disparaging of of the French Open for kind of breaking with the, with the contract with the night sessions and yeah just i just think that well f- firstly it's clear that none of the players want to play in those conditions no. those aren't conditions that you know it's cold it's you know it's slow it's not nice it's just one thing if you know a match goes on and you put the lights on and you put, or you put the roof on or whatever and you play through it but starting and so late as well like there, there were eight forty five um starts which not is, before eight forty five, routinely a little bit later than that yeah, yeah. And 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 the the day would start at twelve instead of eleven, so it just the whole thing just it wasn't. It, it. stunk. The it was not nice way to watch tennis. It was cold. Yeah, it's notably colder at night here. Maybe this is a bit of bad luck, just how the weather went. But it was notably colder here than it was, say, for Rome night sessions, which are, are perfectly fine. Uh, with you know night, night sessions, uh, obviously in other terms, I will say India Wells. I think actually doesn't do good night sessions either. I think those are not great, and they can be cold sometimes. Um. But yeah, it's just not a tournament that's been built for night sessions. And and the way they were marking these tickets, you know, they were saying you get the match of the day, right? And this is another big problem with the French Open. And the night sessions made it even worse is I have so many fans messaging me during this tournament being like, I want to see Nadal. When is he going to play his next match? Yeah. And you can't answer that with any confidence during the first week because he could play on Chatrier, he could play on Longlon, he could play in a night session. So you have a one in three shot, essentially. Or not, maybe sometimes you can... Look at it. People like me, I can often, like, I'm better than than chance at predicting these schedules a lot of times. I know who's played where, what's likely to do stuff. But still, you're leaving fans guessing blindly in the dark for triple-digit purchases in terms of Euro prices for these tickets. Yeah. And I think it's really poor as a product for tennis to be doing that to fans. And and the night sessions just add to that. And also, you're saying it's the match of the day, and then routinely not putting the actual best match of the day on there. Like, I'm sorry. Yeah, like, yeah. The best match of the day was on, that, on like, the fourth-round day was 100%, or not 100%, but was 85% uh, Nadal-Felix uh, yeah, yeah. was the best match of the day. Yeah. And and the second one would have been Djokovic-Schwartzman. Uh, but the, but the match they actually put on was Alcaraz versus Hachinov, which the, is not the best match of the day. And that's that's unfair to ticket buyers who are promised, who only get one match, and are promised match today and don't get it. And, and the thing here is that the, those top players are all, you know, requesting that they don't play, and, you know, they want to play in the day. It was, yeah. it was funny... Um, Djokovic played in in Longland, I think, twice, and and the second time people were getting quite, you know, people, out, you know, out, out there, out there, you, you know, people yeah. were quite upset that they were putting the, the world number one on on Longland, and then he came into press and he was like, um, you know, I'd much rather play here than play in my yeah. conditions. No, so I so. I just hope I honestly hope it goes away. There's so much cash in it. It's just a, a cash grab, like you said, um, to to open this new sort of goldmine of, of a whole new avenue of new ticket to sell. If they're going to do it, I wish they would change it to, instead of night session, have it be like evening session yeah. and make it be two matches, uh, men's and women's, and just have it start at like 6.30 p.m. Yeah. or something. 
but it's it's just not great. And yeah, the scheduling here again, like the whole thing, it's just so tough. Tennis is a product to to not have people know when their favorite player is going to play until like six p.m. the night before, and you kind of have to buy tickets before that. My advisor, future reference for this tournament, I told people this who did ask me in advance, and I don't know if it worked or not for it. I worked for at least one of them, I know, so good for them. If you're in the situation for trying to buy French Open tickets specifically, it does happen also in Australia and New York. We're trying to buy day versus night session. You can't be 100 percent sure when your favorite's going to play. But even here, it's it's worse, I think, because uh, now there's a third option and uh, it's a little less logical. Even buy if you really care about seeing a specific player, whether you're an Nadal fan, Djokovic fan, you know, uh, Shvantec fan, whatever it is, buy both and either go to both. And I know that's expensive, but or just sell the one that you don't want wanting in the end. Like, to play it safe, you have to buy both. And it's just frustrating and annoying that tennis is this remedial as a project, as a product to require that. Um, so that's sort of my rant about night sessions. I, I think they were widely very, very unpopular. Yep. And uh, it, and it's also one of those frustrating sports and business things where, like, it was a considered basically unpopular by everybody, and also we don't think they're going away. Yeah. So it's just it's annoying on lots of levels there. On uh, last thing, uh, to sort of wrap up, let's look ahead briefly to Wimbledon. Uh, we'll do a show for the draw in Wimbledon, I'm sure. But uh, what? Where does the? Where are the tours left? Uh, Iga Shantek, let's start with her. 35 match win streak. We don't know if she's going to play Berlin, uh, which she's entered in. People, people, yeah. are, people. There's whispers that she won't, but she does need. If she, I don't think also it's advisable for her to go into Wimbledon with no grass prep. Yeah. So, 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 so she said that she wants to take a, a week off and, and rest in in Warsaw. Uh, if I was, if I was, I, I would. Not play Berlin and take a wild card into Eastbourne. Yeah, honestly. that's what I do. Are there certain another grass tournament in third week for the women too? Eastbourne is it just Eastbourne? I don't know. Anyway, bad, but, bad Homburg. Okay, or bad Homburg. Maybe she could play also. Uh, Eastbourne is at five hundred though, so it might be yeah. might be better. It's interesting uh, to see where she goes from here. She was a junior Wimbledon champion, but said she hasn't necessarily think all that will transfer in terms of conditions and stuff. I still think she's for my pick to win Wimbledon because she's so far ahead of the pack right now. But I also would not pick her necessarily over the field the way I confidently did here. But there's no one obvious to challenge her. And then on the men's side, I don't know if I've ever seen Alcaraz play on grass. But um, with the with the Russians out in terms of Medvedev, with Zverev presumably out with his uh, foot injury, um, with Nadal, who knows? Although I've been obviously been bitten and shy, whatever, many times with Nadal in terms of injury forebodingness. I think Djokovic is a it's a pretty clear clear favorite for Wimbledon. You agree? Oh yeah, yeah, by by far. I mean, it's the same thing with la- last season, where so many a lot so many players just beyond who you mentioned, a lot of the kind of mid you know players inside the top ten, inside the top twenty aren't as proficient on, on grass as they are on other surfaces. You know, some down to game style, some just down to not having as much practice on it in the past kind of few years. And yet, you know, people like Sitsipas, who, you know, that's his work statistically. As much as he likes the idea of being a good grass quarter, I think statistically it's his worst surface and it's also, like, brings out some issues in his game with, like, his, his return of serve and, like, the speed of the courts and whatever. Um, and, and just other, that's an example. And, you know, there are other players who just haven't been able to adapt as well as on grass. I mean, Zverev was, was one of them. He, I think he made his first, like, fourth, Sam fourth round there, I want to say many years ago but then hasn't really done as much since um yeah. So, so yeah uh, especially at Wimbledon so yeah it's kind of a Djokovic is to me the heavy favourite and I think you know funnily enough given that he's kind of almost like compared to the rest of the field like the the, spe- he, the specialist grass school player um, I think given what we were talking about before with how he just was so he didn't show up the way he needed to against Nadal, this is an opportunity for him to kind of reassert himself on the field. And, you know, I, I, if he didn't win, then I'd be quite shocked because I just don't know who... I don't know who would be a good... I mean, obviously he goes into any tournament to win, but I don't see what would be a good loss for him, like a, yeah. an acceptable loss for him. Yeah, and talk about who, people who are sort of the other floating challengers, you know, like... Uh, Felix, I think it's been mentioned as someone who's kind of shortlist there now, but I think it's still a big gap. Um, Berrettini has not played much at all since his injury, so we haven't seen him. He's going to be back on grass. He plans to be, um, but we haven't seen him in a long time. Um, 
Yeah, and it really does matter that like Medvedev isn't in the field. Medvedev would absolutely be a factor. Uh, her catch, I think, it's a big one who could absolutely yeah, yeah. Uh, challenge and beat Djokovic. And well, not it's not given. He's not favoring Djokovic, but he's someone who perhaps would make a semifinal or final at Wimbledon uh, this year. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting time. Shapovalov, I would put in this mix as well as someone who can make some noise yeah. at Wimbledon uh, with his racket, hopefully. And uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, it'll be interesting to see folks over there. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Timani. Thank I think, think it's dark, it's here. Yeah, it's, it, another Sam down, and another Sam coming soon. Thanks, folks. Bye. Gonna lay my head.